0: Good morning, my friends. How are you today? I hope you are well, enjoying a good week with some nice weather change and and that sort of thing. If you have your Bible, you can open to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, we're going to continue in our series this morning uh, in the book of Titus. And so we're going to look at verses 9 through 14 today. Um, Last week, we saw the need for elders and pastors in the churches in Crete. We saw that they were facing... Uh, all sorts of issues, and, and one of the answers for that was to put men in charge of these churches who could lead uh, through understanding sound doctrine, knowing sound doctrine, holding tightly to sound doctrine, uh, that men of character, men of godly character, not just some character, but godly character, uh, could lead these churches into health. And, and that was what was laid out before us, is that God wanted uh, pastors, elders in these churches Uh, to be able to lead. And so one of the things the passage revealed to us is that character outweighs, character is greater than charisma. A man's character, especially as it pertains to a pastor, is far more important than his charisma, than than his giftedness or his attraction or, or those sort of things. The things that we might weigh in a worldly sense, God uh, does not look upon. It's very similar to what God said to uh, the prophet Samuel when uh, he instructed Samuel to go choose for him to go anoint the next king, which was going to be David. Uh, he speaks through Samuel there and he says, God is not concerned with the outward appearance of man, but what is on the inside of a man is what God is first and foremost concerned with. And so we see that as, as it talks there about elders and the kind of men elders should be, the kind of pastors, uh, the kind of men that should lead a local congregation. And so uh, we scratched the surface there of their responsibilities. We said that they are to hold fast or hold firm to God's trustworthy word. This is what verse 9 reveals for us, so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and then to rebuke those who contradict it. So they are to be men who hold firm to God's word. They are to be men who are holding firm in such a way that they're able to teach God's word uh, and then not only to teach it but to refute those who contradict God's Word. And so in today's text, we'll see how that works uh, within the life of the church, how it works to promote health in the churches. I want to talk to you today about how we build a healthy church. Let's look at verses uh, 9 through 14 here in Titus 1. He must hold firm, the he there again is the elders, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine And also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. The point that I want to lay before you today, that I want us to see here in God's Word, is this We build a healthy church by holding fast to and teaching sound doctrine. We build a healthy church by holding fast to and teaching sound doctrine. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for for this word here in Titus 1, 9 through 14 as we've received it. Lord, help us to be faithful to it today as we read it, as we seek to understand it, as we seek to apply it to our lives. Father, help us to know what is your will in this passage. Father, help us to live it out, please, by the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word today to be transformed by Your Word, to be changed into the image and likeness of Christ through it, as only Your Spirit through Your Word can accomplish. Father, I pray that You would use my feeble words, my finite abilities today to impact Your people. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. So Paul begins this section with, this is why I left you in Creed. He lays out in verse 5 the goal of sending Titus to the island of creed he says so that you may put what remained into order and establish elders in every town you put what remained into order and establish elders in every town what the implication here is is that things are not in order that there are not elders in every church that there are uh, things are disorderly there are problems in the churches but why elders? Well, we looked at, again, we looked at this last week, but I just want to remind you of a, of a passage. Ephesians four eleven through 16 says this. It says, And Jesus gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 4 passage is saying so many parallel things to what we see in Titus 1. So the elders are a gift from Christ for the church. They're to be pace setters. They're to be pastors. They exist for the sake of healthy churches. Healthy leaders lead to healthy churches. Both the churches in Crete and the church at Ephesus face similar difficulties that elders were to address. In Ephesus as well as in Crete, There were pressures of worldliness and persecution outside the church. Those things were infiltrating the church. They were coming into the church. They were putting pressure on the members within the church, but it was happening outside the church, persecution, worldly pressures. The second thing we see in Ephesus and and in Crete here are that false teachers exist. These false teachers teachers have uh, deceitfulness about them. They're deceitful for a purpose, though. They're deceitful for selfish gain, and that's happening inside the church, that there are false teachings being perpetuated that would benefit the self-proclaimed pastors of these places, the self-proclaimed teachers within these places in either a monetary way or, or some other physical way. But they were teaching what they ought not to teach for shameful gain. The problems within churches are really the same today. We talked some about this last week. I want to bring this back up with me, this week as the context is still largely the same here in Titus 1. We too face outside pressures of worldliness. We face outside pressures of persecution. And inside, at least Christianity as a whole, maybe not within this local church, we face false teachers. And the answer to these issues is the same today. It's godly Elders, it's pastors who would hold firm to the Word of God so that they may give instruction concerning God's Word, give instruction in sound doctrine, and then be able to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, the command to give instruction in sound doctrine to refute those who contradict it are for the health of the church's members. Those things are not... They don't exist as a separate thing that elders are called to do. Those things are an elder's mission for the sake of the health of the church members. Pastors are to be spiritually healthy men so that they may lead the congregation into spiritual health also. That's the picture in Ephesians 4, right? It says that they would equip the saints for the work of ministry, that they would build one another up into the image and likeness of Christ, that they would attain maturity in Christ, that they would no longer be children who are tossed to and fro by the wind of uh, of cunning speech and unsound doctrine, deceitfulness. And it's the picture here in Titus also. This becomes more clear as we get into chapters 2 and 3, which we'll get into in a couple of weeks. The, The point of the passage is not that pastors build healthy churches. It's not that this falls on pastors to build the healthy churches whether the pastors lead the charge so that the pastors and the members, partnering together for the sake of the gospel, build a healthy church. This is the language throughout the New Testament, is that here is, Paul will write, in all of his letters, in all of his epistles, there will be a, a layout of sound doctrine. Take the book of Romans, one of his longest works, the longest work. Sixteen chapters, chapters 1 through 11 are sound doctrine. It's all pertaining to salvation, how it comes. It's pertaining to sanctification, how that takes place in our lives. And then chapters 12 through 16 are, go do this now. Here's how it works itself out in the life of the church. Ephesians is the same way. Chapters 1 through 3, sound doctrine. Chapters 4 through 6, go do this. Go live this. Go be this kind of people. And Titus, because it's a pastoral epistle, it's a letter to a pastor, it's mixed in. And so we'll see it as we go throughout the letter that here's sound doctrine and here's sound living. Here's healthy doctrine, here's the healthy Word of God, the trustworthy Word of God, and here's a healthy way to live it out. Here's the fruitful way to live. To live it here's what it ought to produce in your life and so titus is a book that holds up the gospel and godliness and says here are how these two things work together and here in chapter one he's tasking pastors with the role of teaching sound doctrine that leads to godliness and again in chapters two through three this becomes even more evident The point of the passage is not that pastors build healthy churches apart from the church. The point of the passage is that pastors build healthy churches as they partner hand in hand with the members of a local church. Amen? It's not above the membership, it's in partnership with the membership that we build a healthy church. So i want to lay this out. We build a healthy church by holding fast to and teaching sound doctrine. That's my, my main thought for you today. And so What I think this passage reveals, what I believe that we see here, is that a healthy church must do three things. I'll go ahead and lay these out for you, and then we'll walk through them so that you know where I'm going today. The first thing they must do is rely on sound doctrine. The second thing they must do is refute unsound doctrine. Rely on sound doctrine, refute unsound doctrine. And then number three, they must reproduce sound doctrine. All right, I get bonus points this morning for having three points that all begin with the letter R, okay? This is good stuff. Rely on sound doctrine. A healthy church must rely on sound doctrine. Titus 1, verse 9, part A, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Last week I went into a little bit more detail, so again, just kind of a synopsis. He uh, refers to the men who are chosen to be elders in the local churches. It's a plurality of elders in a local church, and that plurality of elders must hold firm to God's trustworthy Word as taught. That is their mission. It is their identity. It is their primary responsibility. They are to know God's Word intimately, and so they may teach God's Word faithfully. If an elder does not know God's Word intimately, he cannot teach God's Word faithfully. Elders do not exist in a vacuum. They do not exist above or outside the congregation. Godly elders are gifts from Jesus Christ to the body of believers within a local church. They are Christ's stewards. They are His under-shepherds. They report to the Master. They are not the master. These men are to say what God has said in his word, nothing more and nothing less. They hold it up for the people to see and they teach how to live it out. This is the way it's been going on throughout the history of God's people. If you look back in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra stands before the congregation as they're uh, they're coming to a time of repentance. And Ezra stands up and he reads from the law. He reads from God's Word. And then it says that he expounds on it, or he teaches what it means. And then you get this picture there of how the people, the the other elders, the other teachers there, went from person to person, and they taught how we ought to apply these truths to our life. It's the same thing that's been going on for centuries, for millennia. This is how God Moves his people in a direction. This is how God transforms his people. This is how he calls them to repentance. How he calls them to faithfulness. How he creates new believers. It's through the proclaimed word. He does it through his spirit. But an elder is Christ's steward. He's not a steward of himself. He's not a steward of his own life only. He's not a steward just simply of his ministry That's not his identity. His identity is that he's an under-shepherd of Christ Jesus. He's held accountable to him first and foremost. Before Christ went to the cross, he's with his disciples in the upper room. And And he tells them about the coming Holy Spirit. He tells them how the Spirit will be with them as a helper. And Jesus says this in John 14. He says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name... He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit was going to be with these early apostles as a helper to teach things that Christ had not yet taught, which are the things we read now in our New Testament, and to bring to remembrance things that He had taught. He was with them as a helper. It was those disciples who then went out, full of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the Word of God as they had received it from the Spirit of God. And those words became the foundation for the church. That is, that by the preaching and the receiving by faith the gospel of Jesus Christ, people became members of, God's, uh, of Christ's body, of the church. And so elders today do the same thing that these early apostles did. They must commit themselves to know God's Word Alone, It's the only tool available for training in righteousness. It's the most important tool in an elder's tool bag. All Scripture, Paul writes in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Profitable for reproof. Profitable for correction. Profitable for training in Righteousness. All Scripture is breathed out by God. This means that it's His words, from His mouth, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, an elder commits himself to the Word of God because the Word of God is the only thing profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness, not only in his own life but in the lives of the congregation. In Titus 1, 9, the B part, says so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. So he must hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Now remember that give instruction has in mind the kind of teaching that instructs the mind The kind of teaching that impacts the heart. The kind of teaching that invites the will. It's the kind of teaching that invites a life change. It's not just a, here's a fact, two plus two equals four. It's here's a fact about God and here's what this means for your life. Or here's what this calls you to. Here's how this changes you. It's the kind of teaching that shapes a person. It's the kind of teaching that forms the whole man. Man not simply their mind. If we've only grasped a knowledge of God without a love for God, without a love for His people, then we do not really know God at all. This is what John lays out in his epistles. We, We may know some things about God, but we do not know God. An elder must be able to teach the church under his care to rely on God's Word as he is relying on God's Word. The word sound here, give instruction in sound doctrine, means healthy. It means to be healthy. But before we receive the gospel of Christ, we are spiritually unhealthy. In fact, we are spiritually dead. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, Colossians 1, Jesus makes known to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, but, but when the gospel is taught faithfully, God, by His Spirit, makes spiritually dead men rise to spiritual life. He regenerates them by His Spirit through the power of His Word. Paul writes in Romans 1.16, he says, "'For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes.'" I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes.'" We, we use the phrase gospel around here a lot, and we do it for good reason. We are tasked with teaching sound doctrine, which we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, gospel, the word gospel just means good news, but it's the good news about a specific message, about the message of Jesus Christ. And, and so at every level of ministry, both inside this church and outside, we are tasked with proclaiming, heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I must ask, what is the gospel? If we went around the room today and I asked you to give a 60-second summary of the gospel, could you do it? Let me show you four basic parts of the gospel of Christ. God, man, Christ, and response. God, man, Christ, and response. There's a track, there's actually a book called What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. He lays these things out really, really well. There's a track out here in the lobby in in our little box of tracks that exist called What is the Gospel? Lays these things out very well that you might take them and learn it and use it to evangelize your your neighbor. But, But let's deal with the first one, God. When we're evangelizing somebody, when we're talking about the gospel, the first thing we need to understand is that we're, we're talking about God and, and something very specific about God. We are saying that He is the creator of all things and that we are accountable to Him. He's the creator of all things and we are accountable to Him. Paul, again, in Romans 1-4, through 4, lays the gospel out beautifully. In Romans 1, Paul informs the church that they are not autonomous. They don't exist in vacuums either. They're not on their own. They they didn't create themselves. They they, they aren't self-reliant. They're not self-accountable. They were created by someone and they're accountable to the one who created them. And because God created you, He knows what is best for you. And so God commands you to worship Him alone. This is what Paul's revealing in Romans 1. Jasper talked about some of these things this morning in Sunday school. In Romans 121, we read this, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we see in the gospel message that there is a God, He's the creator of all things, of heaven and earth and everything in it. And what we also see is that man does not honor Him. Man does not Worship him. Man does not give thanks to him. And so that brings us to the second part, man, our our problem is that we have rebelled against God. This is the problem in the world today. There is a God who created, there is a God who issued commands. There is a God who is to be obeyed and to be worshipped, and we have not obeyed him nor worshiped him. Mankind did not honor God. they did not give thanks to him as they should have. They exchanged, Paul writes in verse 23, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What you read in Romans 1 is devastating. You read the most pitiful sight that you can behold, that mankind considers its creator, that mankind thinks about its creator, but then chooses to cheaply trade him for the worship of created things, including themselves. It says images of man. So what we read about in Romans 1 is that mankind finds creation more glorious Mankind finds creation more satisfying, more valuable than God. This is the height of insult and rebellion against God. Its it's results are are horrific. Romans 6.23 reveals to us the results of this. For the wages of sin is death. Rebellion against God is sin against God. Worshiping created things is sin against God. Choosing to suppress the truths about God, choosing to not acknowledge God, choosing to live your life apart from God is sin. The wages of this is death. You say, well, Kyle, I thought you said the gospel was good news. How many of you know before you can have good news, you've got to know the bad news first? God created God is the only one worthy of worship, and mankind has rebelled against God and chosen to worship creation rather than God. And so we get to Christ in the gospel. God's solution to humanity's sin is the sacrificial, substitutional death and resurrection of his own son, Jesus Christ. Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The law shows where you're sinful. The law shows that you don't measure up. The law shows you in all the ways that you fail and rebel against God. And yet God, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In other words, there is a way for human beings to be counted, This is what Gilbert says in his book, by the way, in other words, there's a way for human beings to be counted righteous before God instead of unrighteous, to be declared innocent instead of guilty, to be justified instead of condemned. It has nothing to do with acting better or living a more righteous life. It comes apart from the law. So how does it happen? Well, Romans 3.24, right after we read that, Uh, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we get verse 24, which says, we are justified by His grace as a gift. Everybody say, grace is a gift. Grace is a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus. So the sacrificial death and resurrection, through the sacrificial death and resurrection, because of His blood and His life, sinners may be saved from the condemnation that our sins rightfully deserve. Now we're getting into the good news. But there's really one more question, right? Salvation is made available through Christ, but, but how is this good news for me? How do I become included in this promised salvation? How do I take hold of it? Let's get you to response. So God created, man rebelled, chose to worship God rather than or sorry, chose to worship creation rather than God. God sends his own Son, Jesus Christ to be the atonement for sin and now you're left with a response. What is your response? Part of this response, what it does is it shows us how you can be included in the salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God, that, that means the right standing, the perfection of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't come through your good works. doesn't come through your ability to muster up the strength to do whatever. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What it takes to have faith in Jesus is to humble yourself, not exalt yourself. You're not working up to some great faith. You're bowing down in humility to God, saying, God, I am imperfect. I have sinned against You. I'm in need of Your Son Jesus to save me from my sins. I put my faith in Him alone that I might be saved. This is what salvation looks like. So how does the salvation become good news for me and not just for someone else? How is it good news for you and not just the people sitting next to you? How do you become included in it? By believing in Jesus Christ. By believing in Christ. By trusting him. By trusting nothing else. By trusting Jesus to save you. Romans 4, verse 5, To the one who does not work, meaning to the one who does not stand on his own good works, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It is the gospel message as first proclaimed by the apostles and the prophets that the church finds its foundation, its belief in Jesus Christ, through the gospel message which unites us to Jesus Christ, unites sinners to Jesus Christ, reconciling them to God once and for all time. And it creates a body of believers that spans the space of time and place, a people for God's very own possession, a people who are once far off but have now been brought Near to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is just, uh, Ephesians 1, 1 verse 2 through 10, is just this great layout of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians 2, after verse 10, verses 11 through like 18, Paul's laying out here's how it's made a, a new people. And this is what he says, so then you are no longer, in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, by the Gospel of Jesus Christ, you become the body of Christ. You become His people. And like bricks being laid on a foundation with Christ as the cornerstone, you are being built into a temple of God. Healthy churches hold fast to Healthy churches rely on sound doctrine. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. We must rely on that sound doctrine always if we hope to build a healthy church. Again, we build a healthy church by holding fast to and teaching sound doctrine. And that gets us to the second point of what healthy churches do. Healthy churches refute unsound doctrine. They have their ear to the ground. They're listening. They're observing. They're watching. They're testing everything that they hear, which is proclaimed to be from God, to make sure that it lines up with God's Word. They're the Bereans that we meet in Acts. Who tested everything that Paul said to make sure that it was actually as Scripture says? Now we get into the point of having elders who hold firm to teach sound doctrine. It's to protect the church from false teachers. In Titus 1 9, the, the C part there, the final part, says, so that he may be able to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. Who are those who contradict it? Well, it seems here in Titus 1, it's a collection of many, Paul says, from outside and inside the church, especially including the circumcision party, which were the Judaizers, the ones who wanted to mix Christianity and Judaism. Titus 1, 10 through 14 says this, for there are many who are insubordinate. Many who are empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, Paul says, a prophet of their own said Cretans are always liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. And Paul says in verse 13, this testimony is true therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to jewish myths and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth you see false teachers are threatening the health of the church they're teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach and as in doing so they're upsetting whole families and so they must be silenced now upsetting whole families might even have in mind upsetting whole churches as churches would have been meeting in homes during this era. But whether they're upsetting whole families or whether they're upsetting whole churches, the false teachers must be stopped. And Paul is very strong about what it means to stop them, about what must happen. He says they must be silenced. The idea of silencing something here in the Greek is the same for muzzling a rabid dog. It's these teachers are like ravenous wolves. They're dangerous to the sheep. And so they must be muzzled. They must be silenced. They, lest they harm anyone else by their false teaching. Lest so they destroy someone else's faith. And Paul goes on to say, rebuke them sharply. Why? Because they're always liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. They're a rough bunch with a total disregard for God and His Word, and so they must be rebuked sharply. Now, the idea of rebuking someone sharply, I don't think means what you might originally have in mind, whatever connotation originally comes to mind. Like, when I initially read this, I think of some of the Facebook posts I see these days more of a ranting and a raving. That's not what Paul has in mind here. What Paul has in mind when he says rebuke them sharply, he has in mind a surgeon with a scalpel. A surgeon takes a scalpel in his hand and with precision and focus, he removes the tumor with that scalpel. The surgeon doesn't enter the operating room with a butter knife. He's not weak. He's sure. He doesn't enter the operating room with a machete. He's not bombastic. He's gentle and bold. He has the right tool for the right problem at hand. And Paul wants Titus and these elders to guard the church. He wants them to protect God's people with unsound doctrine. His goal is healthy leadership with a healthy church body. There are times when a dog must be muzzled before he can be trained. There are times when a tumor must be removed for the man to be made healthy. And we live at a time where calling out false teachers is considered judging one another in a way that goes against Christ's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. But Christ, neither Christ nor the Old Testament, sorry, New Testament, neither Christ nor the New Testament church knows anything of this sort of conflation of thought. False teachers Christ was about this. His apostles were about this. The early church was about this. False teachers must be silenced lest they lead others astray. It's not a mere matter of opinion. It's that they're teaching things that go against the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're teaching things that are contrary to truth. But even further than that, they must be rebuked that they may be sound in the faith. Anytime you read Paul when it comes to church discipline, when it comes to rebuking false teachers, Paul has in mind restoration. He has in mind reconciliation with God. He has in mind saving someone's soul from hellfire. Not only are the souls of the hearers of these false teachers at stake, Paul is saying the souls of the false teachers are at stake. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. They're unsound now, Titus. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound. The false teachers here in Titus 1 are certainly guilty of perpetuating false beliefs about Christ, about His atonement, about His salvation, about works, about sanctification, and and many other issues. It's highly likely that these teachers were teaching Jewish myths concerning genealogies, perhaps trying to figure out a way to deny that Christ is the promised Messiah. It's certainly what Jews today do. They certainly perpetuated the commands of people who turn away from the truth. In other words, what they were doing is they taught a works-based salvation. You, You must not only believe in Christ, but you must be circumcised, observe holy days, avoid eating certain foods, and other Old Testament ceremonial laws. And in doing so, they turned away from the truth, and they caused others to turn away also. False teachers are easy to spot. Paul gives us their identity here. They are greedy. They live godless lives. They are either adding to God's Word or they're taking away from God's Word. Those are three easy marks of a false teacher. Some false teachings that are prevalent in our day And when I say in our day, I mean our culture, even here. A works-based Christianity. There are many people out there and maybe even in here who believe that because I'm a good person, I will make it to heaven. I can just simply do enough good things, be moral enough, I'll be in heaven. I have heard preachers proclaim such falsities at funerals more times than I care to remember. The kind of man or woman you are has nothing to do with whether or not you are saved. It's where your faith is for your salvation. And if you're saying that by my good works I will make it to heaven, you are saying that you are the Messiah. The bad news is you will never be good enough to inherit God's kingdom on your own. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. You must believe in Christ and do these things to be saved is another way that this is this works-based Christianity is perpetuated. Again, churches are perpetuating this even in our community. Some churches add baptism to belief in Christ. that You must be baptized also or you're not truly regenerated. Others have added a baptism of the Spirit to believe in Christ, which I will say the Scriptures know nothing of. However, you are justified before God by faith in Christ alone, not your works. Baptism is an outward showing of this inward faith. It's me identifying myself publicly as a Christian. But it is not what saves you. There is nothing, Scripture makes it clear, there is nothing that happens. It's washing no dirt off of you, Scripture says. Christ has done that. You are already clean because the Spirit regenerated you. You are saved by faith in Christ, which leads to good works. You are not saved by your good works, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. One of the second false teachings that we see in our community is cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity is this idea of saying that you believe in Jesus but you produce no spiritual fruit thereof, but that's okay because he believes in Jesus. Let me say again, Scripture has no understanding of such Christians. A a Christian's life in Scripture is meant to be observable. There is fruit from true belief which is meant to be seen. Namely, there is a dependence on God. There's a pointing others to depend on him also, especially those who are closest to the professing believer. It's very close to that I'm a good person, so I will be in heaven, but it's, it's different. These people will say that they believe in God, but rarely, if ever, engage in Bible reading Rarely, if ever, pray to the Father. And the fellowship of believers is not important for them. They have fruit, but it's bad fruit from the flesh. They do not have the fruit of the Spirit present in their life. And so they're easily discernible. The problem is they're the hardest People to reach for the gospel of Jesus Christ, to reach unto real salvation because they have convinced themselves or some church culture convinced them that they are saved because they made a profession of faith or a prayer, walked an aisle maybe as a child, got baptized, and have lived like hell since. But because of that one moment, they're Christians. And I'm telling you, Scripture knows nothing of that sort of Christian. He must be transformed. A third one that I see is progressive Christianity. This one's coming quickly at warp speed. And I'm afraid that we are not, I shouldn't say afraid, my concern is that it's going to sweep many, many away. It's extremely popular. It's in vogue it's being held out by the world's largest denominations less and less pastors and churches are devoting themselves to holding fast to and teaching god's word alone the church instead is adopting worldly culture it's syncretization it's syncretizing christianity and worldliness. It's saying we can wed these two things together so that we can reach more people. But if you soften the gospel that man has rebelled against a holy God and is in need of repentance and that comes through Christ alone. And now our response is faith alone for our salvation. If you soften that or if you cheapen that by mixing Christianity with worldliness, there is no salvation. There's inclusion in a visible church, but there is no salvation. There's no inclusion in an invisible church. Do you understand what I mean? You might look like a Christian outwardly. You might participate with people who proclaim to be Christians, but there is nothing on the inside of you that is spiritually alive. You're just as dead as you were, but now you've been made comfortable in your deadness. And so churches and whole denominations are adopting the world's beliefs regarding sexuality and marriage, embracing the likes of transgenderism, homosexuality. They're denying God's word concerning men, women, and marriage. These church put into leadership men and women who are in clear rebellion to God's word. Individual Christians are becoming more and more influenced by the world's teaching on individualism, marriage, gender identity, fame, power, money, doubts about God, etc. Worldliness is creeping in. But it's because pastors and churches have not taken God's word seriously. Fathers haven't taken seriously the training of their sons and daughters for godliness, for discipleship, for knowing God, for following Him. Now we can't look out there and be so overwhelmed that we can't change the culture. You change the culture by loving your wife, by loving your kids, teaching them the gospel. You change the culture by holding fast to, in a local church, God's Word, instructing people with sound doctrine. You hold fast to sound doctrine by refuting unsound doctrine, calling it what it is in hopes that those people will repent and give their lives to Christ. It's no wonder the world is in the shape that it's in. Christians and churches are cheaply trading the worship of God for idolatry. All of this seems to lack or stems from a lack of biblical knowledge. It's a devotion to your own feelings over a devotion to God's word. And so we must recover a reliance on sound doctrine so that we may be able to refute unsound doctrine. It begins with pastors, yes, But the mission to rely on sound doctrine, the mission to refute unsound doctrine is for the entire congregation. You too need to have your eyes open, your ears open, your mind open, and your heart open to understand what's infiltrating your life. And does that accord with sound doctrine or does it not? The only way you'll do that is if you know God's Word. But together, you and I together, We'll build a healthy church by holding fast to and teaching sound doctrine. This is how it happens. God's Word is our foundation. I want to remind you of Ephesians 4, 13 through 16, which I read earlier. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we we, we grow up. Building a healthy church is a team sport. Pastors set the pace and equip the members to join in the work of ministry toward one another for the building up of the body of Christ. And there are three tried and true means of grace for believers to grow in Christ-likeness. The first is a commitment to the study of God's Word. Commit yourself to study God's word. The late pastor A.W. Tozer said this, he said, Satan's greatest weapon is man's ignorance of God's word. Again, just observe the world we live in today. And so you must, brothers and sisters, I can't plead with you enough to make time each day for the reading of God's word for your commitment to it, your devotion to know God. You want to know God and know His will for His life? You have to read His Word. You will not know it apart from that. And I encourage you, don't just... it's, It's not terrible, but I... People come into my office frequently needing counseling. Brother Kyle, you, you won't believe what's going on. And just lay things out. And we just begin to talk about spiritual disciplines at some point in the conversation. Okay, how's how's your Bible reading? Well, you know, I've, I've got the Bible app on my phone and I've got the little widget on there that shows me a verse each day and I, and I read that every day. Is that all? Yeah, that, that's it. But But I've done it for like, 40 days in a row. Okay. That, that's a random verse generated by a Bible app for each day largely meant to make you feel good about yourself. I have the same app on my phone and see them each day. But, but what you're not getting in that typically are truths about God. You're not going to know God through reading one verse a day. It's just not going to happen. It's not enough. It'd be like watching a movie one second at a time per day. You're not going to know anything about the movie. You probably won't even know anything about the movie watching one second, two seconds of the movie per day for 40 days in a row. You're still going to be trying to figure it out, especially if they take random clips from the movie. They don't show them in succession, right? What in the world am I watching? What in the world's going on? And yet we'll read our Bible that way and think, oh, I know God. Oh, you have no idea who God is. You're scratching the surface. You have to make time each day to read God's Word. You have to read books of the Bible, verse by verse. We're in Titus now. Start with Titus. Read verses 1 through 4. The first section, right? And then... The next day, read 5 through 9 if you want, which is the next paragraph. And then after that, read 10 through 16, which is the next paragraph. But read something in succession, study it, and seek to know the Lord. If you've never read a gospel before, read the gospel of John. Commit to read the gospel of John. Read it daily. Paragraph by paragraph if you want. But read it and pray as you read, because the goal of Bible reading is not just Bible intake, it's to commune with God, it's to have conversation with him, it's to know the Lord. And so as you're reading, you're saying, Lord, help me to know you open the eyes of my heart. God, I've filled my mind with garbage and I need you help me. And then make notes about what you're reading. Meditate on what you've read. Think about it throughout the day. Pray it throughout the day. That you might really know God. The second thing is dependent prayer. Which goes, I'm kind of getting into it in my last one, but dependent prayer. Pray to God for illumination. That He would reveal sound doctrine. Especially as you're reading but not only as you're reading. Pray for the knowledge of God. Pray for your own salvation. Pray for the salvation of others. Pray for your own sanctification, that you would grow in Christ's likeness. Pray that God's kingdom would come to your life and to your home, and that you would be about His kingdom and not building your own kingdom. Pray the Lord's prayer daily. Pray for transformation, that the Holy Spirit would show you how to apply sound doctrine to your life. He would show you how to live a life of godliness. Pray for the leaders of this church. Pray for the members of this church. Pray that God would build a healthy church here and that we would all be joined together in it as a team sport. Pray for the regular fellow, or sorry, participation in the regular fellowship with the saints as the third tried and true method. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as the day draws near. The day there is the day of Christ returning. It says don't neglect to meet together. Consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So commit to gathering with the body of Christ. This is one of the ways that God grows you is through the fellowship of of the saints where you meet together and you study God's Word. You pray together. You worship together. You talk about your life. You share prayer requests and therefore you're sharing burdens and joys. There's plenty of opportunities around here to do that. There's Sunday school. There's home groups. There's biblical manhood and womanhood. There's Sunday mornings. You can form your own little Bible study group outside of this where you say, hey, let me get a few guys together. Let me get a few ladies together. Let's read through Titus over the next few months. don't simply show up. Be present when you're here. Be in the moment with us. Worship God. Seek Him alongside of us. And then share those teachings with others that we might have fellowship of the saints with new saints, the ones that Christ saves by the proclamation of His Word and the power of His Spirit. All of this is about being dependent on God alone for your salvation. It, it's about being dependent on God alone for your growth in Christ's likeness. So that you might be rooted and grounded in sound doctrine. So that you may be able to refute any unsound doctrine that comes your way, tries to infiltrate your home or your heart. That you might reproduce sound doctrine in the lives of your family, your friends, your church family, those who are outside of the church, who Christ wants to bring near through the gospel. Sound doctrine does not exist for the puffing up of our heads. The end, the goal, the desired end of sound doctrine is that we would know God and therefore fellowship with God. We'd be in communion with God. This gets us back to the The old catechism question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The only way to do that is through sound doctrine, knowing God's Word, seeking to abide in it, to obey it. We build, we will, you and me, through Christ, we will build a healthy church by holding fast to and by teaching sound doctrine. Amen? Would you stand to your feet this morning? We're going to sing a song now. It's a new song, but this one's called, Oh God. And the point of this song is about yearning for God alone. Whether you're in the valleys or on the mountaintops, it's about knowing that God is near to you and devoting yourself to him. And so I invite you now in response to the message today to sing this with a heart full of wanting to know the Lord closely. Let me pray for you and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, we love you so very much. Father, would you guide us in sound doctrine so that we might grow into, into mature men and women. Full stature of Christ, that we might follow him with all of our heart. Father, would you save anyone in here who does not know you? Would you call them out of this world? Call them into life with you? Grant them faith in Christ Jesus by the power of your Spirit. Lord, as we sing now, our greatest desire is to be near to you, Father. God we love you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.